Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Fortin. On today's episode, we're talking a little bit about the emotion revolution in psychology. A recent article published by today's guest found that emotion science funding across disciplines has doubled. The number of publications that reference emotion and memory research, attention research, perception research, decision-making research, et cetera, et cetera, it's gone from zero in 1980 to 10% of the total research in those fields. Why do we think that is? You know, as much as I'd love to sit here and call that the old feelings lab bump and claim responsibility for pulling emotion science into the limelight, uh, this trend started long before our humble podcast began and continues to rise. Humans are social creatures, and more and more, psychologists are finding that emotions are at the heart of everything. Uh, now, speaking about everything uh, can be a bit daunting, so we're going to dial things in today, and I'll use our guest's area of expertise as a guiding light. Uh, you see, these findings began to become apparent for our guest as he's dug deeper into how we as human beings learn, and how we learn from one another, and what we learn, and, and why, and, and that bit really got me excited. Uh, think about it. Most of us could probably name a favorite teacher from our academic life, and typically coupled with that person is the story about the important thing they taught you that you carry with you to this day. I remember exactly what seat I was in for Ms. Borsellino's high school global studies class and how she used history to help teach us to think about others over ourselves. Uh, and why is that? What about all those other teachers who weren't my favorite? They worked just as hard, didn't they? And yet I can't for the life of me recall a single thing I learned in Mr. Drittel's first period in English class. That dude was cold as ice and it was way too early for me to learn anything. Plus we were terrified of him. I digress. Uh, there's a million factors at play here, but but what if your admiration and trust in that favorite teacher had a little something to do with what you learned and, and what you retained? Uh, now, when I say education, I'm not necessarily confining us to the realm of grades K through 12, but rather in general, how and what do we learn as humans throughout our life? And what role do emotions play in that process? What about our relationships with our, our parents, our friends, uh, our enemies, if you got them? Uh, how do these relationships and the emotions involved therein impact the how and what it is that we learn from them. And I'm not just talking about information like uh, math or mechanical skills. What about behavioral stuff? What's an appropriate response to a somber moment? How does one comport themselves at a formal engagement versus a, a casual hang? All things we have to pick up at some point. Uh, think about what it must be like for those who have difficulty picking up on social cues or interpreting others' behavior. How do they navigate this process? And if we know more about that, how can we help them? Uh, that last one's a big one learning how to be social. See, humans are, are social creatures. We're emotional creatures. I've said it from day one, I'm a very emotional person. I've long since been convinced emotions play a role in everything, uh, but it's encouraging to hear more and more actual smart people validate my totally non-scientific suspicions. Uh, and insofar as how it all relates to, to what we learn and how we learn and who we learn it from, I am frankly made of questions. Uh, for those binging these episodes or just those paying really close attention, you may recall at the top of our last chat, I said the main reason I was excited to join this show was to what? Learn. Uh, and all I've been doing is asking a bunch of questions and listening to some very, very smart people talk. I anticipate today will be no different. So let's get to those smart people without any further delay. Joining me as always, I bring the feelings, he brings the lab, my co-host and inadvertent life coach, the great Dr. Alan Cowan is here with me. Alan, great to see you again. How you doing, bud? Doing good, doing good. Great to see you. 
Thanks, man. It's great to see you. Uh, and our guest today has a master's in economic and social history from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, as well as a master's in psychology. A great deal of his inspiration and the questions that drive his current research were born from his decade plus spent dedicating his life to special education in various countries, working with individuals with different special education needs and disabilities. He has recently been asked to join the editorial team of the Studies in Emotion and Social Interaction book series at Cambridge University Press. And now he's here. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Daniel Dukes with us. Danny, thanks so much for making the time to hang out with us today. How are you doing, sir? Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, so I'm feeling pleased. Oh, um, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> pleased is a great place to start. Are you typically pleased, or is that special for us? I would say I'm typically pleased, but uh, no, it's a particular kind of pleasure right now. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm pleased as well, man. Alan, you pleased? I'm pleased. How you look it. So I believe it. <laughs> uh, it's a real treat to have you here, Danny. Let's uh, let, let's jump in a little bit. I'd like to start just a little bit specifically about you, sir, if I may. I yep. mentioned in the intro there that you spent over 10 years working in special education, which is just incredible stuff. And just take a second. How did you end up on that path? And, and what kind of work did you find yourself doing back then? Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, I um, an, an easy answer would be to say that I had a master's in history and I didn't want to go into academia, so I wasn't quite sure what to, to follow up with. Um, I, I kind of took, uh, uh, well, it started sort of as a year out, I guess. I, I ended up um, working in Germany in a rural Steiner um, home, a Camp Hills uh, home with people who had um, particular educational needs. And I found that work extremely rewarding. Um, and ended up moving around a little bit to different places um, uh, in Germany, in Switzerland, with different populations. So, yeah, I started off perhaps with uh, people who had educational difficulties, but also worked with people with schizophrenia, um, people with uh, um, adolescents, most recently adolescents with um, behavioral difficulties. Um, I remember the first day for just to give you a quick example. Uh, this was the very first day this had started this um, new project, I guess you'd call it. And uh, I opened the front door to our first two pupils, and they jumped out the window and started jumping from roof to rooftop um, outside the window. So that was that's when I realised this was going to be an interesting project, and it was. Um, uh, it wasn't like that every day. And the kids got better, um, or they didn't. If they didn't get better, we they ended up um, being channeled into sort of um, special care. And if they did get better, they were able to reintegrate school. And um, yeah, you know, either either way, it could have been a happy ending. That's such a dramatic scenario to start your uh, journey off with. Did you find yourself? That's a very what did I get myself into moment. Uh, and you saw that, and you thought this is the challenge I was looking for or, oh boy, I've got my hands full. What were you thinking of when that, when that happened? How did you feel in that moment? I think both. Um, uh, I had, there'd been a lot of, um, I mean, this, this was day one of, of getting yeah. the kids in, but it wasn't day one of the project in the sense okay. that there'd been quite a lot of background checks. Um, I, I knew, for example, that, um, I mean, these were two 13 to 14 year old boys. Um, I'd been told that one of them had bouts of extreme aggression. I, had, I was told that one of them um, was a pyromaniac. So wow. I, I knew that when I opened, well, I knew that the sparks might fly. The silly joke, but when, 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 <laughs> I'll give it to you. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> um, I'll take it. And 
So what did I do? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, you want to show that you're there, you want to show that you're that they can um, rely on you. So you have to think of something smart on your feet. Um, this is what the training is for, or life training, I guess, to a certain extent. So so what I did was um, I, I said to them that the class would begin when they were ready, and I closed the window, mm. um, which, because there was no way in the world I was going to get out and start chasing them from rooftop to rooftop. Um, so it's I your pay grade. That's uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. So I, I said to them that we would start when they were ready. I closed the window and then um, sat down with the other adult in the room and um, sort of shook for a while, hoping that this was going to work. And eventually, they came back, knocked on the window, and were were ready to begin, more or less, or more ready to begin, let's say, than they had been when they came in the front door. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, in doing my preparation stuff, I was reading a bunch about you and your work and, and trying to comprehend as much as my, uh, you know, layman brain can. Uh, but one of the things that I was really excited to find out about, because I always love these sort of, uh, these origin stories and hearing this background and understanding somebody's journey and path, uh, and right out of the gate, fascinating. That was just like, you took a year off and you were just trying to figure things out and here you are, you would end up in this area that would very much define the trajectory for the, for the, you know, majority of your career since then. So. I read it, that a lot of your inspiration, a lot of the questions that you're trying to answer now came from that time and came mm. from that work you were doing when you were working in special education. What are some of those questions? And do you recall beyond the moment of closing the window and starting the class? Do you recall those moments of inspiration that led to some of those questions? Um, yeah. So th those moments come, come back to me periodically. I, I, I don't really have a store of them. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do remember once, um, the the founder of the institution, the private institution, I guess, where I was working, he had just died. I mean, he was an old gentleman. It, there was no surprise. But the the director came in and announced that the founder had just died. And some of the people um, began crying, but some of them began laughing hysterically. And um, these were people with uh, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, well, is is this inappropriate in the sense that um, you know, this is a somber occasion and we would be expect to be sad. Or maybe this is some kind of relief for that person. Or maybe, um, you know, I, you don't know what's going in that person's head. It seemed socially inappropriate, certainly. Yeah. But I, I was left wondering a lot about, um, those particularly, uh, one woman in particular, I was left wondering about her experiences and thinking, you know, what is there such thing as an appropriate emotion? Is there such a thing as, you know, what, what made her laugh? Yeah. In that moment, could it have been her own personal experiences, or was it suddenly embarrassment because she didn't know how to deal with her, her strong feelings that came? Or um, that that would not be one of the um, examples, I think. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. so fascinating that you mentioned that now of all times. And I don't know how deep we want to get into this hot button issue, but I can't help but be reminded of you know the passing of the Queen. And there's this: yeah. what is the appropriate response? to the passing of the queen, right? And there's yeah. uh, uh, obviously uh, uh, so many people in a state of mourning, but then there are people expressing uh, uh, the opposite of mourning, not necessarily a celebration, but like mm -hmm. there's just a lot of emotions that are coming up across the world. And it's this conversation of what is the appropriate response to the passing of this person and how how do you define that? Uh, and I'm just reminded of that as, as you're uh, describing that experience there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to judge anyone who might have an inappropriate no. um, um, response. But having said that, uh, you know, I, li I live in Switzerland now. Um, so I'm, I'm not 
in Britain as it's happening. Yeah. Um, but I, I was there when Princess Diana died. Now, of course, the circumstances were very different. Yeah. She was a younger woman. It was tragic circumstances. Tragic. Yeah. Um, and I am by no means a monarchist, but the there was a sense of um, a terrible sense of grief and sadness that kind of hit us all. Uh, yeah. And I, I even felt... Um, this is some time ago. Uh, you know, I was a relatively young man, I think. And but I even felt about felt that inclined to write a letter to her sons because those were the most difficult pictures, I think, for most people. Were her two young sons standing there, mm-hmm. having just lost their mother, um, and you know the number of flowers that were given and just walking along the street. You felt like people were down, and it wow. really felt like what what you could call a collective emotion because yeah i mean i i, I felt that maybe i should even write letters to the to the two boys saying you know you're going to mm-hmm. be okay um which is which is strange in a way because you know little boys lose their mothers every day and you know if anyone's going to be okay it's going to be two princes one of whom is okay. to the throne of great yeah. britain um but perhaps i was talking emotionally rather than financially right right but, um, you know the whole experience was um heavy and i i can only imagine that the the people of Great Britain are feeling it. What, what's different this time is that I'm in Switzerland mm-hmm. and to have so many of my colleagues wish me well and say that they're thinking of me or that, you know, um, that they felt sad when the Queen passed and what have you. That's, that's been a, an eye-opener for me as well. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, so this has been, um, and I know in America, uh, the royal family, or at least parts of the royal family, are, are very popular too. So, you know, this is a worldwide event. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, of grief. Yeah. And what and the thing listening to that and thank you for sharing that story. The the thing that that uh I tile into and I really find fascinating there is those that you mentioned the the shared emotion of this this, this uh communal emotion, the shared grief. And those mm. moments they uh for better or worse they happen they're few and far between this is, I, I don't know what i'm trying to say here is that there's there's big moments right there's uh tragic moments 9-11 brought the world together for in a way of a, a, a shared emotion the passing of the queen huge moment it's bringing the world together when the it used to be the olympics there was not a sad but a, a global moment of of anticipation and excitement and there was there were these big big moments that i, I remember um, as a kid, just that the, the different air, just in walking down the street, uh, just a different vibe entirely where there was a, a synchronicity that you didn't typically feel in your regular day to day, whereas everybody was living their own stories. And so there's something very interesting there that I'd love to uh, devote a whole episode to and, and, and tap into and talk more about of, of what that is and why that vibe shift takes place. And, and also it's so fleeting, right? It's just a very narrow moment of time. It's only for while we're all feeling that thing. And then all of a sudden, one day you wake up and everyone else has moved on and we're back to our own thing again. There's a lot in there to unpack. And I don't think uh, uh, we have all the time for it today, but a very fascinating area uh, to explore. Um, one, one of the things, and unless Alan, you want to speak to that before we move on, because I do want to keep us a bit on the rails, but that is very furtive ground for the stuff that we talk about. Do you have any thoughts in there before we go any further? Oh, I mean, it, it, we'll, we'll talk about emotion and cognition and how it mobilizes groups for action and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about collective emotion in that mm-hmm. context. But I just remember right after the COVID became a thing, everyone kind of rushing to the grocery store and freaking out. Like, <laughs> like the world was literally going to end. Um, yeah. And it was not logical at a certain point. <laughs> people hoarding no. toilet paper. I mean, it just does crazy things when crazy people things. feel collective emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Well, let, let's go uh, uh, 
just a little bit back for a second. Um, you know, the thing that I said at the very beginning of this episode, right, is that emotion uh, is being put at the center of a lot of studies now, more so than it was before. Emotion is being considered. Emotion science funding across dis- disciplines is up. So let's crack that egg open. Why do we think that is? Why are more researchers across disciplines asking how emotions drive different processes? Why now? Why are, why are we suddenly taking a closer look? What do we think, guys? Yeah, so um, I'm um, yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in sort of um, I'm not a big believer in the the, the sort of what's it called a strong man hist- version of history or something like that where there's there's one leader that takes us right. uh, to places or to, to uh, leads wars or losses or whatever. Um, sorry, making a mess of that. Uh, I'll start again. <laughs> um, Go for it. Um, yeah, I would consider that uh, this might be a sort of maturational process of the social sciences and the humanities to a certain extent. Mm. I mean, um, it seems that people have become clearer and clearer to people that, you know, um, emotions guide decision making. They help concentrate attention. They consolidate memories. You know, we remember things better if there was some kind of what we describe as effective content, if, if there was a feeling, a strong feeling attached to it. And, you know, scientists in general, we, we break down uh, complex phenomena to little bits, bits that we can measure, bits that we can cope with. Um, and it seemed to me that the, it, it was pretty, it's become clear in the story that we're telling of the social sciences, of the humanities, that emotion, cognition, the social aspect, the affective aspect, um, the behavioral aspect are all pretty much of a oneness mm. um, that um, we've had these dichotomies in the past. You know, we've, we've split nature from nurture. We've split reason from passion. We split mind from body and with good scientific reasons, as I say, of breaking them down to manageable sizes. But as these sciences mature, we start putting the bits back together we start building bridges, we start thinking about them more. So I wouldn't be surprised if just because of, you know, history, because of time, yeah. that um, this growing conviction that emotions are useful and rational has, has come to us and, and now make it worthy of study. Yeah, I like that. I would, yeah, I mean, thinking about sort of when this kind of rise of focus on emotion occurred across psychology and in other disciplines, I don't want to pin it on a strong man either, but, uh, but thinking about the 1960s counterculture um, where people were moving to be more introspective um, and it came in part as a reaction to the focus on cognitivism too uh, in the discipline of psychology. I mean, there was behaviorism, which focused on external behavior. We shouldn't talk about what's going on internally. The dawn of the computer uh, kind of changed that for psychology initially, and you had cognitivism. Um, but then culturally, there was a shift toward emotion and feeling. I mean, uh, you had the Beatles going to uh, you know India, and you had this rise of uh, kind of Eastern thought and introspection. Um, and then you have uh, you know Sylvan Tompkins who published Affect Imagery and Consciousness, and he was kind of a out there thinker. He kind of came from philosophy, and he was uh, the advisor of Paul Ekman. And Paul Ekman, he basically sent Paul Ekman his two students, Paul um, Paul Ekman, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of the other one. Sorry, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, is it Carol? Is it? Um, he basically sent them to go find out what people in different cultures uh, how they express their emotions. And mm. Bert Tompkins, he he was the first to introduce kind of a typology. Well, not the first. He 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 would wanted to reintroduce the idea of a typology of emotional states to psychology. Um, and it, in my view, it was kind of a a branching out of what was originally a one-dimensional view of behaviorism, thinking about reward and punishment and in the context of reinforcement learning toward multiple dimensions and thinking about emotions as these states that we traverse and that motivate us in, in different ways um, and that define our objectives over time. Uh, and he called that human being theory. Uh, so I, I think he might be a, a core figure at the heart of this, but, you know, cognitivism still was more, much more popular than than looking at emotion for the next 20 years. I think it was until probably the 1980s. And that's where you mm-hmm. see um, the, the rise of a focus on emotion. And that might have to do with um, kind of the spread, spreading out of the counterculture introspectiveness to the rest of society, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and it might have to do with debates and emotion science that started to kind of take hold in the popular uh, discourse of Paul Ekman going around and trying to show that people in different cultures recognize the same facial expressions and then uh, anthropologists arguing with that and uh, other scientists arguing with that. And then suddenly, you know, there were TV shows about it. So, uh, um, so it kind of started to spread. And, and yeah. that's where you get the focus on emotions, driving social interactions, learning, relationships, culture, et cetera. Well, one of the things, Alan, I wanted to ask you, because thanks to Danny's legwork in, in that paper, we have the numbers. We can look at it and we can say, yeah, it's spreading. It's being it's being considered more. It's it's finding its way in. But before we had the data to point to that and say, were, were you feeling it becoming more and more present and more and more uh, common and, and, and more a part of the conversation? Is that something you've been able to observe in your time in this field? I mean, I know you work in emotion science. So you're kind of steeped in it. But like looking in the other areas, have you have you noticed that anecdotally before we had the numbers to say it's happening i mean i i've noticed it <laughs> and i haven't been around very, i haven't been around very long <laughs> but that's, well that's actually why i'm asking right because if you, if it's something you can see in such a short period of time it just shows that it's it's happening at a very fast rate usually these things are hard to observe unless you have years and years and years and years of data to look at right but it's happening quickly people are absorbing and it's it's moving faster it's it and that's that's what i was uh hoping to find out is like what's the rate at which this is becoming part of the conversation and part of the the work and uh and it seems like a it seems like it's happening quickly, which is great. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, behaviorism uh, and then uh, cognitivism. And again, I do my best to keep up with you guys and run with the big dogs. As from what I understand and from what I've read, if I got this correctly, uh, 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 effectivism is sort of supplemental to cognitivism, right? It's not a replacement. Uh, what does it mean to have entered an era of effectivism, uh, Danny? Because you talk about that and you say it's a big area of focus for you. Yeah, that's that's a huge question, and I um, I, I think um, we chickened out a bit in that in the paper by saying we'll leave it up to historians to decide whether we're in a new era or not. We 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 argued that the question was um, worth posing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and I agree with uh, I agree with both of you. In fact, that it, it seemed that there was um, emotion was part of um, well, even even the Facebook, you know, just saying like or not like you know these very simple please not pleased up or down uh these quick emotional 
decisions or um, evaluations that had to be made. Um, this kind of thing was, was seeping in certainly to uh, what was an academic process of emotions more carefully. Um, I, I mean, the, the paper, the first draft of the paper I wrote uh, while I was an undergraduate in Berkeley, um, and partly because uh, I had uh, a meeting with a um, friend of the show or co-host of the show, Dacker Keltner, um, and I had nothing to share with him. So I, I quickly put together a few pages of this idea because, you know, in Berkeley, perhaps more than anywhere else, but certainly um, similar to elsewhere, it seemed that a lot of academics from different fields were, were interested in uh, emotion. Certainly the number of guests that were being involved, invited to Berkeley from different fields was impressive. And that's really where, where the idea came. It was, it was partly from, and I was aware of me doing a doctorate in emotion and therefore probably having this bias of seeing emotion everywhere, right? Hmm. So I, I wanted to check with a few people before the first draft was written, but um, I, I ended up meeting Dacker and I ended up uh, showing him the first draft. And I thought he was very complimentary. I, I left there buzz, buzzing, thinking, yeah, I should do this. Um, he recently told me that he thought there was no chance of it working uh, and he he, he wasn't <laughs> That it was going to work at all, and then it got it got put in a drawer. I had to finish my thesis. I had to start my postdoc. It was only a couple of years later that I picked it up again with uh, David Saunders in, in Geneva. Yeah. Wait, wait why he, did he? Why did he say there was no chance of it working? What did he? He didn't tell me. I, I think um, <laughs> what a move. <laughs> he didn't tell me. It's just this isn't going to work, and then walked out of the room. He's just such a positive guy. You can't always yeah, right? tell. You know? That's why I'm digging into this part of the story. I, I need to know. Even his negativity was so positive as a brick. I left there delighted, um, convinced that I, I sold what was a very big idea to yeah. uh, to an intellectual hero of mine, academic hero of mine. Um, he, I guess he said that it was obvious to him that this was going to have to be a, a consensus paper. Hmm. And um, it, it, but maybe, maybe I'm adding words into his mouth or maybe this is him able to say this uh, Sort of retrospectively, but um, I think the uh, the idea was it was going to be too difficult to get a consensus mm-hmm. um, around, for example, a definition of emotion or what emotions mean across well across psychology first of, first of all, but then across so many um, different disciplines, which is mm-hmm. how the paper eventually became. That's actually uh, that's a beautiful segue. One of the things I wanted to get to. We just did a whole episode with Dacker about the things that uh, scientists most don't agree on, all the things they disagree on, all the things they can't form a consensus, all the things that are up for debate, that are disputed back and forth, yada, yada. So I wanted to flip the coin and, and, and talk about some of the things you guys do agree on. What are the things that we're able, the bedrocks of, upon which we are able to build this? Like, what are the things that emotion scientists and scientists actually agree on? Alan's laughing. Is it nothing? Are there no things? Did I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's funny because in the Rise of Effectivism article, um, it it kind of it it doesn't address uh, a lot of these questions directly. It doesn't really try to be the be all end all theory of emotion, mm-hmm. but it does kind of focus in on the one thing that everybody does agree on, which is that emotions are 
kind of at the core of everything, right? It's like, there's just this huge idea that, you know, without emotion, there's no cognition, there's no social relationships, there's no behavior that like, you don't have an objective to think about. Um, so mm. emotions are the core of motivation. Um, if everybody, if we, if we all just suddenly didn't have emotions, we'd stop talking because we'd be uninterested in what we were saying. We'd have no motivation to talk or like any enthusiasm. We wouldn't feel awkward about not talking as we just sit there and fall asleep and never open our eyes again. So I think there's this like core idea that emotions are just kind of fuel for everything that um, has become really, really popular and widespread, even though we can't agree on a definition of emotion <laughs> and the article doesn't even attempt to lay one out. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the, <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it, that the success of that paper is that it, it doesn't try to, <laughs> it just yeah. focuses on that one thing that we core idea. And there's no way, there's no way. I mean, yeah, to go back a bit, I, I've asked a few senior researchers and there wasn't even consensus about whether we should have um, a definition of emotion that would work for everyone. Um, mm. The difficulty being, um, if, you, if you're a neuroscientist or you're a social sociologist, anthropologist, is one definition going to make sense to both of you? Right. Um, and I think I think there's an argument to be had there. I think it could do, but the people I spoke to, which you know, it's, it's a straw poll. Um, there, there was definitely a, a different uh, opinion there. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to really to reiterate what Alan said, you know, a life without values, a life without motion, uh, emotion means a life without motivation, a, a lack of impulse to acquire knowledge, a lack of um, will to act upon goals. Yeah. Um, we, we would sit in a, in a flattened, evaluative landscape, not caring much about anything. Um, well, that gets us nicely then to the next, but you guys are just, you're doing my job for me. I don't need any segues. If we talk, <laughs> you're, you're just moving smoothly from one topic to the next naturally. Um, you know, talking about that they are the motivational force without emotions and we, we have nothing. Talk about specifically, Danny, then the, the importance of emotion in, in your research and in the work that you're doing, talking about how people learn, what they learn, why they learn, what happens if they don't want to learn, all these different things. What, what role is emotion playing? in the work that you've been doing and then that you've been researching and looking into. Yeah, so um, thank you. You, you, um, you mentioned in your beginning that the, the sort of learning or education that you were describing was, was not necessarily school-based, particularly. I think um, my French-speaking friends will correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I get the feeling there's, um, when we talk about education in French or in Germany and perhaps over Europe, it's much more sort of a family education or a societal education as well as a strict uh, perhaps Anglo-Saxon education at, at, at school. So the, the education that I've been um, particularly interested has been, um, yeah, about learning about these values, about learning yeah. what matters and what doesn't matter, and and learning through um, um, other people and other people's emotions. So, I mean, beyond, by, beyond certain biological needs, right? Um, we can look around any room and we can see what is uh, relevant, what, yeah. what, what is worthy to us, what is significant to us. But as, perhaps as a child or, or perhaps as a newcomer to, to um, or a, a tourist, you know, naive tourist to somewhere, um, it can be um, useful, it can even be a shortcut uh, to look at what other people are finding relevant and mm -hmm. interesting in their environment. Um, you know, uh, fortunately, we can 
learned from others that you shouldn't go and pet the dangerous tiger. And it only takes one one person to be bitten by that. And we've learned that. We one unlucky person had to go pet that tiger first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And or, we thank or, you for your service, faceless, yes. nameless person. <laughs> yes, at the beginning of humanity. Exactly. Or indeed the first person to, to try a, a chicken egg, perhaps. <laughs> the same thing. That was equally brave, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so we can, we can pick up not only what's relevant in our own environment, ourselves. I mean, uh, people have even described emotions as kind of antenna, picking up what's relevant in the environment. Yeah. We can pick up from other people as kind of um, proxies, so proxy relevant detectors, what is important in the environment. And, you know, or unimportant, of course, what is worth attending to, what matters, what doesn't matter. Yeah. And this can be anything from um, whether to support the reds or the blues. Um, uh, I was going to say the, the Yankees or the Mets, but I don't even know if that's the same sport. Uh, no, you've nailed it. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a- <laughs> spot on. It was Mets or Mets. I couldn't yeah. think. Um, um, you know, which, which God to pray to, these kind of things. You know, these, these are opaque to us. We, we cannot know uh, by ourselves. It's not something we can just pick up. It's something yeah. we, we, we learn from others. Um, why do you, is it just a matter of survival? Is it enrichment? Is it just because we're naturally curious? Why do you think it is, this is something that's hardwired into us that we do? I know that's a big question, but, uh, but you know, that, that's one of the things we like to do is look at big questions. Why, why do we behave that way? It's funny because in the history of learning, often, um, particularly developmental psychology, we had Piaget, you know, and we, we had this idea that, um, it was kind of the, the child explorer who was doing everything by themselves. Um, uh, that was what learning was, right? It was intra-individual. It was how the, how the organism would be changed by whatever they had learned. Um, but then, you know, Vygotsky came along and said, you know, perhaps it's, it's more social than that. Perhaps learning itself should be a social endeavor. Um, even, I guess you'd call them post, uh, what would you call them? People who followed Piaget's work anyway. Um, they, they went on to say that it would be, um, that there are things that you can learn socially as well. Mm. So the, the history of learning has started off, I, I think you could say, inter-individually before it became, this again might be this idea of a maturation process of the yeah. science, I'm not sure. But of course, there are evolutionary advantages to learning things from other people before you put your hand in the fire, get bitten by the tiger, or eat the egg. <laughs> so that's a long day if you did all that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People don't have to know that it was one person who did all those things for us. It was <laughs> one accident-prone proto-human that took the bullet, as it were, and did all those things. And it was it was it's a hell of a week. for that person, Matt. I want to see that. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the monument we should be building. <laughs> Biting into an egg and getting bitten by a tiger. <laughs> just a grimacing human, just a miserable person. <laughs> had a long, long go of it just <laughs> and you're full of emotion so they were right there <laughs> exactly. yeah exactly <laughs> oh that's so funny um one of the things i couldn't help but think about and this may be a little trivial but just as i was prepping for this and doing all the reading and talking about learning and, and so much the expression can't teach an old dog new tricks uh mm-hmm. kept popping back up in my head and this idea uh uh you know that obviously I used to, uh, years ago on a previous job, I would work with uh, all kinds of people teaching them how to use computers and stuff. And I worked a lot 
with a bunch of octogenarians and, and, and older people that wanted to learn how to use their email. And a lot of them were super curious and wanted to learn new tricks. But of course, some of them were also grumps and didn't even want to be there and their grandkids bought it for them and they don't even know why they showed up. But the point is, it's not a universal thing, but there is something to it. And so I was thinking like, you know, where does, where does that come from, right? Does, does our curiosity or interest in things fade over time? Uh, is it unique to each? Obviously, every human's unique, but I just wanted to take a second and see, just get some actual scientist perspective on, on what we think about that. Uh, the idea can't teach an old dog new tricks. Is, it, is that true or, or is there a reason behind that? Or is it just one of those things that we like to say? I think it's more true for dogs than it is for humans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll argue, no, I got an old dog and he's learning new stuff every day. So I'm oh, shooting that one down. <laughs> right, right. Thanks, Alan. Danny, what do you think, boss? As someone who looks a lot into this sort of stuff. Is it harder for us to learn as we get older or what do you think, Ben? Um, I think certainly interests develop, right? And interests yeah. changed. And perhaps what we learn, thank goodness, changes because, you know, I have, I have two young children at school and it seems that they're learning everything everything by rote, uh, just big long lists, whether it's um, vocabulary for the, the languages they're learning, whether it's lists of parts of a volcano or whatever else. It, it seems like there's a, an awful lot of learning by rote. And um, I, I don't know is the short answer, uh, yeah, but I, I would have thought that um, I would have thought that that kind of learning would be more difficult, but conceptual learning, and it depends how old you mean, you know, as well. Yeah. Um, also, um, interest and curiosity, you know, a lack of interest and a lack of curiosity are actually parts of the DSM criteria for uh, depression. Mm. Um, so it, it could be possible that these people that you're dismissing as grumpy old people um, <laughs> could, could have been, you know, anxious or depressed or lonely and that here they were coming and uh, they, they were suffering from a lack of interest because they were suffering from depression or anxiety. That is uh, a bummer, but a very uh, appropriate thought. Frankly, I was this was years ago. I wasn't at a stage to recognize that kind of thing, nor I think societally society. We weren't talking about emotions as much. Uh, no. You know, I'm going back like. 10 12 years here and, and that doesn't sound like a whole lot but a lot has changed in the decade and change and, and so it's really interesting because had i known that then maybe i could have approached my lesson plan differently not that i would you, you, you don't realize until you're in it how much uh, psychology goes into training somebody one-on-one -on -one and how much you have to understand their brain and and, and reach them in, in a way that they're going to be able to retain and connect to that information and had i had the capacity to identify that maybe they were depressed about something. Not that I could have helped them navigate their depression, but I could have uh, uh, structured the lesson differently, talked to them differently. It's very interesting. I, you just blew my mind there. I never thought of it that way. I was just so locked into that thing I was taught of old people get grumpy. But there's, yeah, well, yeah, they have emotions and feelings too. They are humans. Yeah. I'm not trying to play into tropes of, you know, the stereotypes of older people, but just a, a lack of interest, a lack of curiosity can be a sign of, or as I say, it is literally is one of the two main criteria of depression. So yeah. um, if somebody that you know has a lack of interest and curiosity in life, it might be something to think about generally yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm painting with broad strokes as I like to do on this podcast. I'm not saying you found like you've you've cracked the code and this is the solution for everything. But it's very interesting and it's an it's an angle I hadn't approached it from uh yet. Uh I think we've touched a little bit on this. We've talked about, you know, how we learn from others and things of that nature, but I wanted to get into a little bit deeper, the, the, the get lost in the weeds, getting the nuts and bolts here. What are socio-effective processes? How do we learn from others? What are the most important things that we can learn from others? 
Um, yeah, sorry, Alan. You, uh, this is Judge. Carry on, Alan. I can't tell if he's no, frozen no. or stuck in thought. I'm, I'm good. No, <laughs> sorry. <It> was like... <laughs> there he is. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I had a malfunction. <laughs> yeah, mentally, not technically. You just had a cognitive malfunction there for a moment. So, yeah. He was blown by the question. <laughs> what do you think, Alan? How do we learn from others? What are the most important things? What do socio effective processes look like, man? Oh, is are you directing that question at me? <laughs> now I am. <laughs> okay, I okay. So now it's, now it's at me. <laughs> Just so you know, uh, there's no way for me to cut around this one. This is just you gonna. This is how you're gonna look on the podcast. This is, <laughs> I'm. This is all gold. I'm keeping this. In. I love this. This is what happens when I get Alan on record before twelve o'clock Eastern time. This is it, no, it's twelve o five now. I no longer have any excuse. This is now my. I'm supposed to be functioning at this hour. I tried to yeah. give it out. I tried. Uh, I mean, well, like, what, what is learning? By the way. Uh, <laughs> so yeah so this is this is danny duke's area of expertise so this is where i'm like okay social affective processes well if i mm -hmm. want to expound on this i think that you know there's there's affect which drives cognition and kind of reverberates through our body mm -hmm. through expressions through physiology and all of that um so at every moment we're kind of traversing this tree of thought and each fork and each branch we're making a decision that what's the next thing i want to think about how do i want to continue this thought and it can't be based on another thought it's based on emotion right and so emotions kind of they direct our thoughts but um you know we're not uh, we've evolved as social organisms. We don't think alone. We think together, right? And so the way that we think together is by signaling to each other a little bit about what we're thinking, what's the direction, what's the objective. And that's why, you know, we learn really from each other's expressions and looking at each other and deciding together what's interesting and having conversations and all of that. And so that to me is social affective learning. And it's sort of at the core of what it means to structure relationships in society and, and culture. Um, but also, you know, even from the first moments of learning when you know, infants are learning from their mothers, how they're learning from their mothers. Um, and then, you know, in the same way that emotions direct thoughts, uh, emotions direct learning because you, can't learn without knowing what is important to learn next, right? Uh, you can't learn without an objective. There's an infinite number of things you could look into and, you know, try to describe in the world. But we decide, you know, these are the things that are important, the things that, um, you know, are surprising or interesting or satisfying or scary or amusing. So, that's the importance of the subject. And I will yeah. pass it to Danny to explain what we actually know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's all absolutely perfect. I, I can subscribe to all of those things. Um, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we came up with a, um, a concept during my doctorate with my, um, my um, professor, Fabrice Clement, called effective social learning, which was intentionally that way around rather than socio-effective learning. Um, because we were building it basically on, you know, we, we tell ourselves stories about how, how we come about, about human beings and what have you. And the, the social learning narratives um, or social learning narrative seems to have been split into two historically. You have the, the social learning um, of the animals, which is a kind of behavioral um, type story of um, bonobos learning to um, fish for ants. Uh, using honey or something like this out of a out of a trunk, and then showing it 
essentially, or it, people, other, other bonobos being able to learn that and then follow up and do the same thing. So this is a very kind of behavioral social learning. I can't, I can't let an opportunity pass by on the Feelings Lab to call back <laughs> to our season one favorite runner of mine, which was Alan uh, educated me to the experiment with capuchin monkeys that developed currency and traded it for monkey pornography. Uh, that's a little tease out there. For those listening, go back to the early seasons. You could hear us talking in upsetting length about that. <laughs> but I would not drop it and, and, and hear evidence of that fact as you bring up another experiment where we get to see the, the, the learned behavior there. Sorry to derail your important conversation for my interjection <laughs> on Capuchin Monkey Porn, but wouldn't be you know doing what? my job if I didn't bring it up again. It's a bit of a digression, but I want to add that I've now done it with parrots too, and they've t- taught parrots to use m- tokens of money. Money, and parrots are much more generous. If you just give the money to one parrot, they won't expect anything in return. They'll just give the money to other parrots so that the other parrots can also buy food without expecting anything in return. So it's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> They're but are more they buying than... tiny little adult books with parrots in them? Are they doing it? They... <laughs> you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to find out. Anyway, sorry for that digression. My goodness. Welcome to the Feelings Lab. Uh, this is our last episode. That's it. We're getting shut down. <laughs> we can't be trusted. <laughs> Uh, but you were, yes, I'm so sorry, Danny. You were saying. I, I thought my story of termite fishing was interesting until we get on to pirate pornography. But um, um, yeah, so here, here we are with these bonobos watching other bonobos termite fishing. Um, and th- this was the, the behavioral story, the behavioral side of the, the narrative of social learning. And then we have, of course, in human development, we have a much more cognitive side where, where children learn um, through language and, uh, you know, what's right and wrong, morality, or um, who should I trust, and these kind of things. This is a very cognitive version of um, social learning. And of course, um, up for a challenge, I, I decided with my colleagues um, to think of what effective social learning might be, bringing these two stories together, first of all, um, pointing out initially that, of course, for, for termite fishing, or for any other uh, animal activities that we might have talked about today, you're going to have to have some level of interest and some level of curiosity going on anyway. So there must be, at some point, some motivation, an effect-driven uh, motivation, uh, first of all. Second of all, if we can say that we can learn behaviors um, through behavior, we learn cognition through cognition, what do we learn through um, effective social learning? Well, the idea was that we learn uh, a value that we learn how other people are evaluating the situation. This is what we were describing earlier, right? You use other people to um, decide whether you should be going for the reds or the blues. I'm not going to try the jets or the, yeah, yeah. whichever sporting team you should be going for. Um, I got lucky the first time. Um, (laughs) And so, um, and the idea to take it a bit beyond that up to the next stage is that if, the people that you're using as reference, right? The, the, the group of people that you are looking to, to see, to evaluate how you yourself should be evaluating something. If that group is a relatively interconnected circle, then you are learning their value. Mm-hmm. You are learning their culture. So, you know, in this way, basically, culture is, um, is passed through yeah. effective social learning, learning through other people's 
affective um, uh, behavior, affective attitude, um, what, uh, what is matters, what doesn't matter, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One of the, and, and we're, I'm going to try to, there, I've got like a whole other episodes worth of stuff I want to talk to you about, Danny. So we're going to have to make time to get you back on the show. But one of the things uh, that I want to touch on a little bit that I feel like we can get to from here as we talk about uh, all the significance of that relationship and the things you can learn is uh, social regulation. And uh, and so and being supported by those yeah. around you because you're not just learning behaviors as well, right? But you're uh, now you guys are talking about uh, in addition to learning behaviors, but learning how to harness your own behavior through support of others. And something really fascinating that you're doing. And I was reading, I wrote the title down of the thing I tried to read: uh, "Socially Supported by an Embodied Agent: The Development of a Virtual Reality Paradigm to Study Social Emotion Regulation." Uh, and this was fascinating to me because, it, and I'm going to get to the. One of the things we like to do towards the end of the episode is look to the future and this kind of I'm going to ball up like nine things into one topic here and make a delicious little uh, uh, cookie to put at the end. So you guys, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about this thing that you were doing, exploring the efficacy of of social support by a virtual agent uh, Mm -hmm. and talking about how great VR is for this kind of work because you get control over the the, all the different uh, different elements of the situation. You get to set up a consistent environment. You have so many more controls than you would typically have if you were trying to look at this interaction and so there's a lot in there that i would love to dive into and explore one of the things that goes back to stuff we've talked about a million times on this show uh, and talking about virtual agents and talking about vr and ar and and all these different things Uh, the uncanny valley has come up a lot and the significance of creating a believable human uh, counterpart now here we are talking about Somebody learning the the process of of, uh, of emotional regulation in a social setting with a VR uh, an AI driven agent. How important are the aesthetics or the general appearance of the agent offering the social support? Uh, you know how how significant does it need to be a human character? Can it be uh, a cartoon character offering the social? Well, you're in virtual reality. Anything is possible. And I know you guys have been focusing on keeping things consistent and using those, but I'm just very curious as to uh, uh, how much of a factor it, the believability of the scenario is and, and, and what your thoughts are on that and what you've seen so far in this work. So, yeah, that, that, that's, um, the, the paper you mentioned is... Um, it's been accepted, but it isn't quite out yet. And it's, okay. uh, it's, it's um, really interesting work coming out of uh, Andrea Sampson's lad, uh, lab led by Steen, um, Lena Stolman. And basically, it, the, the paradigm is the cyberball task, which has been used loads and loads of times. Very briefly, essentially what happens is you get to, first of all, participate in an exercise where you play pass with two other people. And then eventually the two other people just start passing to each other and you're left out. And I've lived that. <laughs> That's happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this has been shown to be a very powerful way of um, letting people feel um, left out and uh, sad and all sorts of negative, uh, ex- you know, lived experiences. Do the agents um, turn to you and go, hey, why don't you just keep score? I think you'll be better at that. And then you go, okay. <laughs> and then you just you just watch them play. Is that what happens by any chance? <laughs> well, you know, something similar. So yeah. what, what happens is that um, we test how sad people are when they've done the um, uh, 
uh, done the uh, when they had this experiment done when they've been part of the paradigm, and they are they are sad as we expected. But what we didn't quite expect, but of course what we thought might happen, is that if the um, if the social agent they're called, the, the sort of the avatar comes over and you know wishes them well, or say you know don't, even if they just say don't worry about it, essentially that's strong enough for people to feel uh, better again than they would otherwise have done. Yeah. Um, so. You're right. The VR has was necessary because we wanted to kind of play this out lots of times and have exactly the same kind of um, offer, if you like, the same presentation. But also, it was very interesting because the question, the bigger question, if you like, was can um, VR agents, social agents, um, help make yeah. people feel better exactly. in that kind of kind of situation? And yes, apparently, they, I mean, you can it again. Yeah. <laughs> early doors, it's, um, they're a bit pilot studies, but not quite. This has to be um, run several times, I think, before we can have a def definitive answer, yeah. a definitive answer. But the signs are good that we can. It just sparked such a conversation amongst us when we were getting ready and doing our little brainstorm. And the thing that came up, we all we all discovered our, our, our mutual love for, and I don't know if you, have, if you remember or encountered the character Clippy from Microsoft Word <laughs> and Excel back in the Ooh, day. Yeah. Little yeah. Clippy would pop up and he'd be like, looks like you're trying to write a resume or something. And he would offer <laughs> advice. And apparently we all loved Clippy. And we were, and we felt supported by Clippy, and we were like, "Why yeah. the hell is that? He's a paperclip." And then we were like, "Well, is it because what is Clippy? He's two very expressive eyes. He's got like he has the things that we look for. He's not a human at all by yeah. any stretch, but he has human-like features to communicate the emotions and stuff. So maybe we felt supportive, and so maybe it's not about." Uh, uh, a human as much as it is the the human features, eyes, mouth, expressiveness. I don't know. And there was something to explore there. And I don't know that we have the answer just yet, other than we like anthropomorphic paper clips, uh, <laughs> whatever that means. But yeah, I just, I wanted to dive a little bit into that. And it sounds like we're still figuring out what, what it is. We know that virtual agents can be successful and can provide support, but I suppose we're still learning the limitations of that, uh, if that's an accurate assessment for me to make there, it sounds like. I don't think yeah. there's limitations. Yeah. No, no objection. All right. The motion is passed. Uh, the only limitation is that they're not, they're not human, right? But they could act like humans. So. Yeah. 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 There's a lot to dig into there. All right. Let's, let's go. Oh, wait, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say that there's a, a famous uh, um, experiment. I'm not quite sure if it was an experiment. It was a demonstration. And unfortunately, I forget the names, but um, it's something and something. But that's not going to help us. Anyway, yeah. basically, you have a ball and you have a triangle, and you have a kind of open square. And, and it looks like, the film that you see, it looks like, if I remember rightly, the triangle is being very aggressive towards the ball. And you see the ball being pushed around by the, uh, by the triangle. And you would, you would, you know, if you didn't think too much about it, you would be saying that the, the ball is sad, and the triangle is being kind of angry or something like that. So we do have to be careful about... Uh, I guess anthropomorphism anthrop about giving animals <laughs> <laughs> emotions or or paper clips animal, uh, emotions or something like that. But at the same time, we have this opposite effect of well, sure, why not? Maybe a paper clip can give us some kind of uh, <laughs> feedback. Why not? I mean, um, oh, go on, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> when we evolved those instincts, there were no walking, talking paper paper clips that had eyes and expressions and all that stuff. I mean, they just. I think that what the, what the what it really shows is that social perception. Even if we know this thing is not a real agent, it just it's an automatic process. We yeah. are built to perceive 
um, animacy and those kinds of things. And, you know, even if we're in, a, and this has really important implications now because we can be in a virtual environment or kids can be in a virtual environment completely unsupervised. And all, the only supervision they could possibly have is a non-playable character, an NPC, yeah. a synthetic agent. And it needs to be, if it, if it can do that, if it can have these qualities and be able to ensure the, good emotional development and interactions, that's that's great, right? The, the other interesting thing to me too is like, because you mentioned there weren't paper clips back when we developed these skills, <laughs> but how forgiving those skills have become over time, right? <laughs> if I show an anthropomorphic paper clip to somebody from the middle ages, it's not going to mean anything to them. They might be frightened by it. It might be sorcery. So like, <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting to think about how over time we've brought in the scope of what we will allow into that very, you know, personal process. Um, I could do this all day. Let's get one more thing in before we wrap things up. Like I said, we always love to look to the future. We started this conversation. Uh, first of all, thank you guys. This has been so much fun. All right, let's do our last thing. We started this conversation talking about uh, the world of scientific research, embracing emotion science more and more and how it's becoming more uh, a part of everything and accepted part of everything. Let's look ahead a little bit. Blue sky, let's say five years. I want to talk about the future before we get out of here. What does a, what does the next step, what does the good version of our future look like? What What is going to happen in the next five years as this is becoming more a part of things? What are the breakthroughs we're hoping for? We're excited to see. Uh, uh, what What's next? What's coming down the pipe, we think? Dream big. Don't let your dreams be dreams. <laughs> I mean, I'm an AI person, so I'll talk about technology. But think, you better. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the AI space right now, there's basically a tendency toward reinforcement learning. In a, it's sort of inspired by behaviorism and then the kind of shift to cognitivism where um, people were still doing reinforcement learning. They were thinking about how like, do entities learn from reward to engage in certain actions in order to facilitate like more reward. And then the cognitivists were like, well, there's complex co computational architectures that underlie what you've actually learned. So let's think about what those architectures are. And that's basically a state of AI is just like, we have architectures that learn. And um, we, I think the, the big What's really missing is the social affective part. Um, and, and so if we can build social affective learning into AI and have AI agents that um, not only learn from some really, really narrow objective, but broaden it out and they learn from what other people learn and they learn from what other people makes other people happy and what makes other people interested. And they learn to kind of serve our objectives in that way. I think that's happening very soon. Um, then we'll be able to uh, have a really, really cool clippy character who <laughs> we can have a relationship out, really. yeah yeah <laughs> no, the, clippy was ahead of its time the, clippy had had no <laughs> had, didn't really learn anything right <laughs> it just had some pre-programmed bits but imagine yeah. it could learn everything and you could tell clippy hey um you know uh make sure that this email looks good you know and that it does my what i'm trying to do with this email and then people could be like oh, maybe you could change that wording over here yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, clippy. One can dream. or make me some recommendations for you know what what i should do on vacation because clippy could know us really well and um and be be that guide so i think that that that's something that's going to happen 
I go full Star Trek. <laughs> Clippy, make me a sandwich, and then a little that's replicator what... <laughs> just like beams up a little sandwich that Clippy made for me. That's what—that's the future I want to live in. Yeah, uh, I mean, if they can make you a sandwich, they can do a lot of other things too. Then we have to worry. <laughs> just focus on the sandwich thing, all right? Well, the other stuff will come in time. <laughs> that's a lot of physical capability for a machine like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I—I I also want my Clippy to have hands. Uh, I don't know what monster I'm building here. Let's get away from this. Uh, and let's go back. Let's stick to the five-year limit that I uh, imposed here. Danny, real quick, talk to me about your your ideal future and what you're excited about coming down the pipe, man. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if it's my ideal future necessarily. I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of... And in five years, let's not forget, isn't that long. You know, people... Uh, can can still be working on their um, thesis after five years, but um, I guess in AI it's it's a, it's a much longer time than it might be elsewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I think there are two things. Um, real quick, one one is that um, a lot of people who I speak to describe the future of effective science as being interdisciplinary, um, and uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think um, there's almost consensus about it. I would think, but the problem is that the way institutions and universities are set up, um, you know, grad students have to apply for departments. Uh, we have to apply for funding in our own separate fields, etc. I think there's a big will for interdisciplinary to, disciplinarity to happen, but I'm not sure that it's going to be able to happen. Yeah. But more in terms of the content, I'm um, I'm with Alan on this. I think it's the social that's going to be um, the big deal. I, I think that. Um, this move, perhaps, as I said, I think there's been an overabundance of uh, focus on intra emotion as an intrapersonal uh, phenomenon. I think thinking of it in terms of interpersonal is going to be really interesting, mm -hmm. and I'm 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 looking forward to seeing how human AI and um, artificial intelligence in general are going to deal with these um, interpersonal yeah. uh, aspects of emotion. For sure. Awesome. Well, ask Alan, if I don't stop now, you'll be stuck here forever. Uh, so I got to bring us to a close. I've run way out of time. But first and foremost, uh, thank you so much, Danny. It has been absolutely fantastic having you on today. And I can't say how fun. much we appreciate it. Yeah, you had fun? Did you? Was it a yeah. good time? A lot of fun. Thanks very much. That's, Thanks for inviting me. Uh, that's what we love to hear. Alan, thank you as always. You were fine. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm grateful to you as always uh, for making time, bud, and indulging me on our show here. And, uh, and I love doing this with you. So thanks again for hanging out with us, Alan. Good to see you. Uh, I wouldn't be wrapping up an episode of TFL if I didn't recognize arguably the most important piece of the puzzle. That's our audience. Thank you, everyone, for listening, watching, liking, reviewing, all that fun stuff. It means a great deal to all of us here at the old lab. I uh, hope you come back again for the next one. Speaking of the next one, if you have a question, an idea, or any thought that's popped into your little head there, send it on over to us. Just share it with the world. Share it with the rest of the class, if you will. Uh, you can email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. That's T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at H-U-M-E dot A-I. That's going to do it. Farewell for now from all of us at The Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and please stay safe out there.